0: We have uh, in the bulletin. I don't know where my bulletin went, so I didn't bring it up here. But in the bulletin, there's a lot of information. Now that we're back in the building, I'd like to call attention to a couple of things. One is uh, it's on the back on the back page called the bulletin board. That uh, this week um, women's ministry starts up this Thursday, so read that. You'll want to be there for that. So uh, right back in here, in the commons, are going to start, and then also Iron Hour has been going all along. And so Iron hours is at 6.30 on Wednesdays, and right now we're talking about um, kind of theology and politics and how they go together. We're having some discussions around um, where we stand in the election and what do we, how do we think about all that. I don't know. I can turn that over to Mark because I can't figure it out. So Mark's figuring it out for me. So uh, we're having a great time at Iron hours. so I uh, would love to have you guys come to that. Uh, also, <clears throat> we've been praying. It's so not often do we get to pray for the people when they're with us. We've been praying uh, uh, for some people. I'd like to bring to your attention Pete Ward. Pete, it's good to see you back there in the back. You saw him up there, the oldest and the youngest on the retreat. Many of us have been praying for his granddaughter, Scout. And uh, Scout passed away this week. And so uh, we're very sorry, Pete, for your loss. And uh, I've had some conversations with Pete about it and Mark has. And so when you see him uh, after church or even now, if you want to go over, just go over and give him a hug. He would love that. And then in the first service, I announced that Don and Patty Wolford, were at MD Anderson in Houston. Well, lo and behold, they're actually sitting right here, so they can't be in Houston, unless you can do be in two places at the same time. We've been praying for Don for uh, cancer. He was diagnosed and, um, several weeks ago, and he's been going to MD Anderson every couple of weeks for chemo treatment. And so I'd like to pray for both of these families right now. Father, we are we are grateful for these people in our church. Lord, they are uh, men and women of faith. <clears throat> Lord, they they look to you, they trust you. And Father, in the midst of adversity, we see their faith shining through once again. I do pray for Pete and his daughter and family as they've had to say goodbye to, uh, to a granddaughter. Lord, uh, I can't even imagine that. And yet here he is, faithful and strong. I pray, Lord, that you would be with him and, and his family in very real ways. Lord, one thing I love about Pete is he's always looking to experience something new about you. And I pray that you would be there. Be strong for him and show yourself in new ways to him. And Lord, I pray for Don and Patty. Uh, Father, our prayer is very simple, that the chemo would just take care of this madness, this, this cancer. And uh, that it would do its, what it's supposed to do, do its job, do its thing, and that you would just rid his body of this cancer. But thank you that he's here now. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen him again through the healing process. I never had chemo, but I understand that it wipes out the body. So I pray that you would strengthen him over the next couple of weeks. And be with Patty as she stands strong beside him. And show yourself to them in new and fresh ways, Lord. Even after a lifetime of faith, the longer we've walked with you, the more we look. The more we expect. The more we anticipate, Lord. The more we watch to see you do your great and mighty deeds. So I pray that you would... um, show yourself to them in strong ways. And Father, I pray for others in our congregation that I'm not aware of who are sick, that uh, need your intervening grace, Lord, that need your healing power. I pray that you would be strong in their lives as well. And Father, now I pray for our country. I pray first for our president and our government. Lord, please give them wisdom to know how to guide us. And Father, I pray for the upcoming election. Lord, with joy, we will vote our conscience because you've given us that freedom. Thank you for that but we look to you, Lord, to know what to do. And I pray, Father, that through this process, this election process this year, that you would uh, turn our hearts back to you. Some of us are there already. We look to you daily. Others don't even know who you are. And I pray that this might be a chance to, uh, for you to reveal your glory to the people in our nation that don't know you. Turn our hearts to you. Thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, we are back in the building. It's good to be back, starting a series on uh, making sense of the Bible. Um, Over the past year, most of you know, some of you are visitors, our church has been in a discussion on gender, the role of women, uh, that sort of thing, and the elders came to the conclusion that the question that we were asked by many of you was, uh, can women be elders, why can't they be elders, and so our conclusion after studying it was that we have freedom in this area, and so we were going to turn it over to the membership to decide through the nomination process. And, um, th- and then we opened the conversation up to the whole congregation, so we've had countless coffees and breakfasts and small group meetings and open forums and emails and texts, and it's just wonderful. I'm engaged in all, many, many conversations with lots of you. And so the elders and the staff thought it would be good to take some time, so we're going to take four weeks and answer some questions that you've been asking, basically around how, what were the principles that we used to come to this conclusion, How do we do this? So this is not going to be a series on a Bible study. That's not what it's about at all. It's really a series on uh, what principles do we follow to answer the question, should we and how should we apply Scripture? All right? We we know, I mean, every one of you is aware that uh, we don't have slaves, and so we've decided not to no longer to follow those. There's a lot of value in studying them. But, but none of us, we came to the conclusion that was inappropriate and wrong. How did we do that? How did the church 150 years ago make that determination? Now, to us, it's, it's second nature, but it wasn't to them. They wrestled mightily through that discussion. If you read the Supreme Court briefs, um, it, at, I, somewhere around 80% of them were, were organized along biblical guidelines on both sides of the fence. We should or should not have slaves, and yet the church came to the conclusion in the court system that we shouldn't. How did that happen? Well, the very first thing I want to say is that, because I know some of you have asked this question, what we think about the Bible, this, there's no way I can overstate to you how important this book is. This is my life. I started out in the career world, uh, corporate world, and left the corporate world to devote my life to this and to you. They go together. I can't have this without you. And I can't have you without this. And uh, if you were to sit on our mark in my conversations throughout the week, you would find that invariably this becomes the center of the conversation. We respect this book so highly. In it contains what we need to understand life. It is the story of God's love for a broken world. It is. It's the story of God's love for a broken world. It's the story of a God who allows things to happen, which today we question and scratch our heads and think, why would he allow that to happen? Some of you were around three years ago when I gave the sermon on rape. And uh, in fact, it was the very first time I ever spoke at this church and they hired me. Uh, and, uh, And I raised the question then that the Bible never says don't rape. How in the world did God get us to a place as a people of faith where we believe that that was wrong? The journey through Scripture is fabulous to make sense of it. But along the way, he had to tolerate some things that we would not tolerate today. And so this book is complex, but it is a wonderful story of a God who loves this entire creation and every one of you so much that he'll do whatever it takes without violating your will to draw you to him. His first priority is to get the good news out to the broken world. No other great book does that. I've tried over the last three years to highlight how unique Christianity is. There's no other religion like it. It is so different. Every place we look, it's different than every other religion. And so this book, I can't say it enough, is the starting and the ending point for us. It's where we begin our day. I read this every day, every single day, unless I'm sick in bed and unconscious. Apart from that, I read it. I read it through every year, and I'm going to encourage you to consider doing that as well. On January 1st, I start, and I read it through. On December 31st, I'm usually reading for like eight hours because I've missed some days along the way. No, not that many. But I am catching up through the month of December. But I read it. I read it every year. And uh, and every time I read it, I learned something new about this incredible God, this one true God who we serve. If you don't read the Bible, then you know what? God becomes more of an academic exercise. It's something we discuss as opposed to someone who changes us. So I would encourage you to begin really thinking about reading this Bible. You can start now. You can start January 1st. It doesn't matter to me. I just wish all of you would get into it and read it and read it and read it. Okay, the first question I would like to just briefly address is, has come to our way is, what does a plain reading of scripture mean? What does that mean? All of us that have been to seminary have been trained uh, to the point that we're sick of the training <laughs> in what's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation and application. What do you do with it? It's a science because there are certain rules that you follow. You, you interpret poetry different than you interpret uh, historical narrative, for example. So there is science to it, but there's an art to it, because communication is an art. When we talk to each other, we all use different illustrations, different examples. When I was in my doctoral program, uh, sitting in the library, I had my own Carol. Every doctoral student had their own little office. right next door to me was a Korean student, Samuel Kwok. He's a professor of Old Testament in Korean. And he was translating the books of Chuck Swindoll. How many of you have heard Chuck Swindoll speak or read something of his? Okay, wonderful man. He was the president when I was seminary. I count him to be one of the men that I look up to with respect. The guy has more adjectives per square inch than any other person I've ever read. All right? And so this Korean student, good friend, come around the corner every day with a list of idioms that Swindoll used in his writings because he was translating Swindoll's work into Korean, his writings. What does it mean, I'm going to clean your clock? (laughs) Wow, how do you explain that? Every day. And I realize that there are some things that don't translate, okay? And so we learn in seminary, we spend a lot of time, hundreds of hours, wrestling through this book right here to make sense of it. So, what does it mean, a plain reading of Scripture? Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean a literal reading. It can be a literal reading, but it doesn't have to be. Let me give you an example of one of the greatest divides between Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism is John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, verse 53, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. All right, in Catholic theology, they believe this is literal: that you actually at communion, partake of the literal flesh and blood of Jesus. In Protestantism, we do not. We believe it's metaphorical. We believe it's a figure of speech. Which one's right? I have no idea. I know what I believe, and I'm able to defend it. And my good Catholic friends, I know what they believe, and they're able to defend it. It doesn't always mean a literal reading. The question, what does the plain, mean, the plain reading of Scripture mean? It means to understand what the author intended. That's what it means. We're asking the question, what did the author intend? Can you imagine us talking with each other without using idioms, figures of speech can you imagine how boring and dry communication would be it would be terrible figures of speech provide the spice that makes communication fun the problem is is trying to make sense of them when this is not our world when we're looking at idioms and figures of speech from 2000 years ago and earlier but that's what our goal is is to ask the question what did the author intend Also, um, it doesn't answer the question, a plain reading of Scripture, does it apply today? Is it still relevant? If I took you to 1 Corinthians 11, 5, and 6, and, and you only gave me three minutes, I bet I could convince all of you that Paul taught that women should wear a symbol of authority on their head when they pray and prophesy in church. What I bet I couldn't convince you of is does it apply today? Right? The command is very simple. The imperative is very clear. So a plain reading of Scripture does not always answer the question, do we apply it today? That moves into more complex areas, and that's actually what I want to talk about. So the next four weeks is not a a series on how to study the Bible. You guys all do a great job of that. You're all involved in all your various studies and reading your books. Keep at it. Just keep at it. I want to address the core principles that the elders have decided to use in answering the question, how do we bring this forward to today? What's the criteria we use to determine when to obey a passage the way it's written or to alter a passage to fit our current cultural context? For example, the texts that deal with slavery. We look in there for principles on how to treat employees in the workforce. Is that legitimate? I think there's probably some good principles that float to the surface, but they're written for slaves. Our employees are not slaves, contrary to what many of our bosses think. Okay? So when, when do we just obey it the way it's written? When do we modify it or alter it to make sense in our world how do we do that? Another question I've received along the way is, is this somehow uh, the hermeneutic or the way we're interpreting Scripture, is it somehow postmodern? We're a little bit nervous about postmodern philosophy. You'll be happy to know that postmodern philosophy as a philosophy is already starting to pass behind us. Yay. Uh, But there are some good things. When you go to the national conventions now, if you had gone 10 or 15 years ago, 50% of, you get 10,000 scholars together, man, they like to talk. 50% of those seminars and papers would have been dealt with postmodern philosophy and the way it relates to the Bible and Christianity. Today, you rarely see that. Now they're using language of now that it's behind us. And so that means we have something else coming. (laughs) Get ready. I don't know what it is. We'll figure it out. Your young children are going to bring it to us, whatever it is. Is what we're doing somehow postmodern? No, it's not. There are some good things that came out of postmodern philosophy, and I'll try to call attention to them, but our philosophy is not postmodern. We are biblical. We are theological. We are asking the question, what does the Bible say, and just as important, what, why did God say it, and what does he mean by it? Many of you know 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God, right? <clears throat> Next week, we're going to deal with culture and the role that culture plays. That's another question that's come up. Culture plays an indispensable role in interpreting, interpreting the Bible. You cannot actually do Bible study without that without looking at culture it's impossible all scripture is inspired by God the word inspired is only used one time in the history of the world we have no example of it occurring any place else in any other writing anywhere in the world what do you do with that so we use the word inspired in our English translations to make sense of it and guess what inspiration now has moved in a lot of directions that undermine our view our theology of what god did i was inspired to call you today i was inspired to write a poem i was inspired to write music i was inspired to write you a. it doesn't mean any of those things (coughs) doesn't mean any of those things what it has to do is with is we serve the one true living god who thought it was so critical to get to you his words that he controlled the process while allowing human freedom. It's a wonderful word that we're, we still try to figure out what it means. When we start looking at the, way, the meaning of words, we have to look at culture and how they used them or didn't use them. But you know the passage. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for what? Teaching. Teaching what else? Rebuking, training of righteousness. What else? Okay. Now, <clears throat> that leads us to a point. All of scripture is redemptive for someone, just not you, not directly. Classic example, Deuteronomy 14, 21, do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. I used to use the old King James Version, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk until a parent said, you know, that might be a good way to solve some of the problems. So now I'm using the more current translation, do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. We have no idea what was behind it all by itself, no context. The Bible doesn't talk about it anyplace else. It's not redemptive to you, is it? It's not meant for you, is it? But it was meant for somebody. The best theory that I've heard that I think makes sense of it is that it was a Canaanite religious practice for the neighbors to Israel. And God did not want them to mimic that practice. So he said, don't do it. It's like the believers in Kathmandu, Nepal. They refused to be cremated because... Um, that's a Hindu practice, and they don't want to be mistaken for Hindu. So they refuse to be cremated. Nothing wrong with cremation. They just don't want to do it. And it probably relates to that. So a basic principle is that all of Scripture is redemptive for someone, just not directly to you. It is profitable in that we learn how God is redemptive in the various epics that the Bible talks about. And as we learn how God is redemptive, that gives us not only models and examples, but it gives us confidence that he won't stop the pattern. He still is redemptive today. So we're going to work the answer, to answer the question of how to apply scripture in this series. And we're going to use the Bible as our primary example. We look to the Bible for examples of how to interpret the Bible. And I'm going to start with one that you wouldn't expect. Way back in the book of Numbers. Numbers 26 and Numbers 27. As soon as I mentioned the word numbers, most of you just fell asleep. Wake up. Okay? I love numbers. What's in the book of Numbers? Numbers. (laughs) Lots of numbers. Numbers, numbers, and numbers, and more numbers. It's fantastic. Well, I'm sorry. After the plague, Numbers 26, the Lord said to Moses and Eliezer, take a census of the whole Israelite community by families, so Moses repeated the command, take a census of the men 20 years older or more as the Lord commanded Moses. Numbers 26 is a long list of men with numbers. All right? Then in verse 52, the Lord said to Moses, the land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed. Be sure the land is distributed by lot. So, who got the land? The men. That's who got the lot, the men. That was the standard practice, and God commanded to follow it. You see, the inheritance laws were very simple. If I own land and I die, the land passes to my sons. If I have no sons, they pass out of my family to my brothers. They stay in the tribe, but they pass to my brothers. Then in verse 33 of that chapter you have this little parenthetical note. Zelophehad, son of Hefer, had no sons. He had only daughters. Guess what? He didn't get any land. Now comes Numbers 27, the very next chapter, and you'll see why numbers are important. The daughters of Zelophehad, uh, in verse 1, they're named. They stood before Moses, Eliade the priest, verse 2, and the leaders in the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These five daughters, you can imagine the courage to walk through the nation up to the tent of meeting and say, Ah, 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 we don't like this. Our father died in the wilderness, they said. He wasn't among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord. He died for his own sin and left no sons. He wasn't even guilty of rebellion. He simply died because he was part of the nation. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son?" Because we are women. Give us property among our father's relatives. God had just commanded that the property go to the sons. That was a command from the Lord. So Moses, verse 5, brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, what Zelophehad's daughters are saying are, is right. They have a valid case. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives. This makes it a legal transaction. They could now pass the land on as they saw fit, as long as they kept in keeping with the law. This is remarkable. Women weren't allowed to own property, and here it is, right in our own Bible. God gives a command in one chapter and alters it on the next chapter. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? This leads to the first principle, God's love for a broken world. You have to go to Mark chapter 12, verse 28, I think, to answer the question. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus said, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Matthew's version even adds, on these two commandments, the entire Old Testament is dependent. There is a hierarchy of commands. That's the first thing we learn. Principle number one, there is a hierarchy of commands. And the command to love God and love people trumps every other command. Every other command. So the first principle we followed when we do interpretation is does this interpretation result in bringing the gospel to this broken world? If it doesn't, our interpretation may be accurate, but it just may be relegated to the past, to a different cultural time, because we're not going to follow it. That's our first principle, is that love, as Paul says, Love covers a multitude of sins. And I think what God did was He loved these people. I'm not going to take you through the passage, I'm just going to talk you through it. But the passage on the Sabbath is the greatest example of that in Matthew 12. The Sabbath, as Mark likes to say, it's one of the big ten. God, the Father, pinned that one with His own finger in concrete. You shall keep the Sabbath. And in Matthew chapter 12, you have the story where the disciples of Jesus broke the Sabbath rules by eating. They're going through the fields and they're picking the Sabbath grain. And they accused Jesus of that. Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. And he said, Yeah, you're right. There. But have you heard what it said? David broke the Sabbath when he went in and ate the showbread because he was hungry. And then he goes one step further and says, oh, by the way, your priests break the Sabbath every Sabbath because they work in the temple. It's okay to break the Sabbath. These comparisons reveal that unlawful behavior may be justified on other grounds. There are higher principles. they are greater principles at work. And this is the example that's one of the examples. Over the next weeks, I'm going to give you several. One of the examples where Jesus himself used it. You see, the greater command, the greater need for David was hunger. We were made for the Sabbath, not the other way around. I mean, Sabbath is made for us, not the other way around. And so hunger trumps the Sabbath rule. David was justified just like Christ's disciples were. For the priest, it was the greater needs of the temple. If the priest didn't work on the Sabbath, nobody could come worship. So they were given special case as well. So what Jesus is saying to us is that its unlawful behavior becomes justified on other grounds. In each case, he refers to them as innocent. Paul goes one step further and takes this principle in Colossians chapter 2 and says, why do you allow yourself to be judged when it comes to whether or not you keep the Sabbath? Why do you submit yourself to those decrees? Because they're straight from the earth, from the earthly system. And so Sabbath disappears as a ritual in the church for this reason, and Jesus is one that started it. What's the overarching principle? Care for people. We will allow the priest to break the Sabbath because it's important for the other people to come and worship. He goes on and heals a lame man on the Sabbath. It's amazing how many Sabbaths he used to violate the Sabbath. To illustrate the principle that love is more important than the Sabbath. And so in that same passage, he goes and heals the lame man. What's the greater principle? He talks about it. It's love. They responded by plotting to kill him. That's what they did. So the first thing I want you to know, the first principle we follow as leaders is that uh, does our interpretation lead to bringing God's love to a broken world? Now, just one more caveat. It's not unqualified love. It's not you can do whatever you want. You see, as the Jews came to the cross, they were asked to give up on their, their view of legalism. Which, by the way, a lot of us struggle with. Let go of the laws. Let go of the commands. As the Gentiles came to the cross, they were asked to give up their pagan ways, which included sexual immorality. They both were asked to transform as they came to the cross. So so when we do something for the sake of love, it is not unqualified love. There is a time when we will ask some of you to stop a behavior that is dangerous. That is dangerous. Pete's granddaughter died because of an overdose. That's dangerous. It would not have been loving to say, well, just let her do whatever she wants, would it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So the love that we're talking about is a redemptive love where it shapes us into the image of Christ and we become the very people that God created us to be. We're not created to be drug abusers, are we? Alcoholics. We're not created to be any kind of abusers. We're not created to be mean. We're created to be compassionate, generous, kind toward others, the examples that we see. And so we ask the question as elders, our first principle of application is, does our interpretation lead to bringing God's love to a broken world? Father, thank you. Thank you for sending us your son as an example of that great love. We do love you dearly, Lord, and thanks for giving us ways of making sense of what you desire from us in this broken world and thank you for giving us a word a scripture lord that allows for freedom allows for us to figure out within our own culture what it means to bring your son out to these people who do not know him thank you for that grant us wisdom lord as a church as we continue to discuss and have conversation about these things in your son's name we pray I' going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering, and um, as I've said, and I'll just say it for the rest until I die thank you for your generosity. You're the ones that made the retreat possible. You're the ones that made the amphitheater possible. You're the ones that make all of our ministries possible, what we're doing with all the kids. I'm just grateful to you. Thank you for your generosity.